No one's going to find your stuff unless you push it out yourself. And you have to also not be afraid of like looking like an idiot if you email someone who you admire and they don't respond to you for a long time. Welcome to Rough Cut. I'm Jenny Butler. And I'm Sky Dylan Robbins. Sky, so many of our listeners have emailed us or come up to me or you in person and have talked about how much this podcast has helped them finish their feature film or apply for that grant or apply for a job that they didn't think they were ready for. And I just love hearing all of this awesome feedback. Me too. Me too. I I, we, I get emails every day about how much people are enjoying them and, and finding them helpful. I mean, it's one thing to make something that people enjoy, but it's another thing to make something that people find useful and and can actually apply in their own lives. And so for all of you who are listening right now, if you have found this podcast helpful, if you have found the video consortium, our creative community helpful, we would so appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast. It helps more people listen and find the podcast and it helps us get feedback on on who we should bring on next. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. So please keep your ideas coming for future guests. And we are particularly excited about mm-hmm. today's guest, Lance Oppenheim. He's a documentary director. He has been making short films for the New York Times OpDoc page since Get This the beginning of college. Um, He's very young. He's only 23. And he just finished a feature length film with the Times. Uh, It's called Some Kind of Heaven. It's about the country's largest retirement community, which is in Florida, of course. Mm -hmm. And the film was executive produced by Darren Aronofsky, who Mm -hmm. has never made a documentary film before. It's an amazing thing. And now, as of today, he is uh, officially part of the Sundance family. The film premiered at Sundance, and uh, it's off to the races. This is a really beautiful film, and it's interesting to see someone's body of work as it evolves, especially from shorts to features, right? I mean, there are a lot of thematic uh, visual cues that are reminiscent of his shorts as well, right? Definitely. Stylistically, they're all relatively similar. I mean, his last short, which is one of my favorite shorts, it's called Happiest Guy in the World. And it's about a man, Mario, who basically lives on a cruise ship all the time. Both Happiest Guy and uh, Some Kind of Heaven kind of play with this idea of unconventional homes. Um, And stylistically, they're both sort of like surreal and kind of like bend reality. And and it was interesting to to learn about the the through line of his work in this interview and and how it's evolved into this feature. And also to, to learn about how Lance has forged these amazing connections with the New York Times and with Darren Aronofsky, who, um, as I said, has never made a documentary before. I mean, he's the director behind um, films such as Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream. Mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky is entering into a whole new world with Dobbs. Yeah, absolutely. Lance also brought on his editor for Some Kind of Heaven, Dan Garber, and they talked a bit about their uh, collaborative process. That's wonderful. Do we know what the sitch is on on when people can see the film? Well, it's still early days. I mean, the the film just premiered over the weekend at Sundance, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. 
So this is my interview with Lance Oppenheim, and you're listening to Rough Cut. Hey, I'm Ben Cohen, and I'm a freelance editor and filmmaker, and I'm here to tell you about Musicbed. Musicbed has made it easier than ever for you to find the song you're looking for with intuitive and easy-to-use browse and search, amazing indie artists and bands, incredible composers like Ryan Taubert and Chad Lawson, and thousands of songs to choose from. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Rough Cut listener like me, you'll get one month of subscription for free or 20% off a single song license. Just enter promo code ROUGHCUT, all one word, when you check out. Thank you for doing this, Lance. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Lance, you have been making films in collaboration with the New York Times for years now, since like the beginning of college for you, right? Mm -hmm. How did you get involved with them? Yeah, they... So, the short answer is they have uh, this, like, open submission thing online, and I tried to send a bunch of stuff through there, never heard back, uh, basically used LinkedIn and, like, stalked everyone that worked there, not in scary ways, but just I was, like, looking for, (laughs) you know, like, a way to personally make a contact with someone and I found uh, someone named Lindsay Krauss who was working at OpDocs. And I basically asked her if she wanted to get coffee. And then um, I pitched her a bunch of different ideas for things. And um, it's kind of funny because the, th- like the four things I pitched, one of them I ended up not doing. But the other three are the three movies uh, that I've made with them. The One of them being this the film about the villages, Some Kind of Heaven, but also the... Um, the LAX parking lot film and the cruise film. How did you, I mean, I I think our listeners like always love any advice on pitching because it's Mm. kind of like the scariest process, I think, for a lot of people of of getting a piece of work through. And there's so many different pieces of advice on how to do it well. What do you think worked about your approach to Lindsay um, with these stories? I think, I mean, I came to her pretty like organized, you know, and, and I and I, I was pretty self-effacing that like I don't I don't these are things I found and I don't I haven't talked to any of the subjects yet. I don't know, I don't have any access, but these are worlds I find interesting. These are the reasons I find them interesting. And I basically like gave her these like one pager kind of, you know, uh, almost like a reference book. I gave her a lot of images and as I was talking through stuff, you know, I, I like gave her stuff to look at so she wasn't just zoning out or relying on my mediocre or- oration, oratory, s- storytelling skills. Um, but I feel like, yeah, over time, I've just, I've, I, I, I think that's something that I've, you know, seen is that it's just, it's good to give people something to like latch on to or, you know, let's say if they found like, you know, I remember with the cruise film, um, when I pitched it, I was like using a bunch of images from like Steven Soderbergh's Solaris and different kinds of um, like sci-fi films just to give her an idea of what what I was thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but being open, being curious, and I think just like also owning what you don't know. And, and you know, sometimes you want to pretend like you know more, or you have more in your back pocket, but... You know, the New York Times, at least the OpDocs division, I think, especially at the time I came to them at, um, you know, they don't they don't green light a film and give you money. They kind of, you know, say, oh, this is an interesting idea. Maybe like go do it and then like bring it back to us and we'll see if we find it interesting. And um, yeah, I was very lucky that she, you know, I shot a bunch of different stuff and then they came on to it. Hmm. Um, 
What do you think that she found intriguing about those ideas? And can you describe sort of what you brought to her? Yeah, I gave her a a, a, a folder uh, of like three, you know, pages of three different shorts. And um, I created a bunch of stuff that probably looked like it was made in like Microsoft Paint. Honestly, it was like <laughs> it was like a, it was not the most slickly presented thing. Um I think what she, I don't know. I mean, at the time, I think she was probably just like, wow, this is, you know, like this kid who's, you know, out of high school is like spam emailing me and is being proactive about reaching out. I think that was probably what she reacted to the most because obviously, like, I could have easily shot these films and they could have been not very good. And she, you know, um, wouldn't have been involved. But you so know, she yeah. knew that you were a college like freshman at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, you know, I was like, hey, yeah, you know, I, I at the time I, I took a year off between high school and college, like graduating from high school and going to college. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. You you have to be like a a hustler on you know on the internet. You, that's how you gotta. No one's gonna find your stuff unless you push it out yourself. Even if you get like a Vimeo staff pick or a short of the week or like even getting those things, you have to be very proactive in. Uh, in doing um, hmm. and you have to also not be afraid of like looking like you know an idiot if you email someone who you admire and they don't respond to you for a long time you know yeah I mean it's unfortunate how important connections are in this industry but they are extremely important and so I think any advice on like how to forge those connections is is super helpful can you talk about how you got Darren Aronofsky? Yeah, I mean, he was another case of just like, you know, I, I, f- I have like a spreadsheet going of just like all these different people's inter- you know, emails on the internet that I've like come into contact with uh, or that I've just found after like incessantly Googling them. And I remember I was trying to, I found an email of his, it wasn't his personal email. And then I just started guessing what his personal email was and my email kept getting bounced back and stuff. Um, But I would basically just like, yeah, I found his email and I, you know, I sent him probably like an email once every four months for like four years. (laughs) And then uh, I think he changed assistants and one assistant found one of my emails. And at that point in time, I had made, I think, um, you know, two shorts with the New York Times and his assistant you know, looked at my stuff and was like, hey, stop, please, please stop emailing this email address. Just go and like, I'll, I'll be happy to meet with you for, with, for coffee. But what you were know. you sending the assistant? Just like your work or? Well, I was sending Darren. I was like, dear Mr. Aronofsky, you know, like, well, I'm sure you receive many emails such as these. I just wanted to let you know that I love you and I love your movies and I love everything about them. And, you know, they've inspired me to make these things. And I'd love to just have like a chance to chat with you. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, w- I would send, like, you know, I've obviously, like, I had a very personal connection to his work, but um, I still do that. I mean, I still try to m- and find people who I don't know, um, and if I can get into contact with them in a kind of organic way where I'm just reaching out to them based off of my love of their stuff. Um, more often than not, I've found that that's kind of a successful way to get into contact with people. If you have something to say to them and you have something you've done that you'd like to share with them. Um, and then, you know, if they respond to you, then like you want to act with intent and have a question in mind or, you know, um, in Darren's case, when we actually eventually finally met, it was like I had something to show him and I, I had a specific question in mind, like, can you help me make this film? 
What made you think of Darren, besides the fact that you were like a fan of his work, I'm sure there's a lot of directors that you're a fan of. I mean, he's not really the first person that comes to mind when you think of like a documentary. Yeah. (laughs) He's never made any nonfiction work that I know of. So why did you think that he could help you with this project? I don't, you know, when I reached, when I was reaching out to him, like over the course of like four years, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I was never like, I need this person to help me make a movie. It was really, I mean, I studied the same exact things in college that he did. Uh, That was no mistake. Like I like basically when I was in middle school and growing up, like, you know, I saw the fountain really uh, when I was probably like 11 or 12 and that movie had like a kind of a profound impact on me. Um, so, I mean, he was like, you know, he, he was one of my favorite filmmakers is the short of it. But then also the other thing, you know, when, when it finally came down to like actually trying to work with him, you know, he does have a really good grasp on, yeah, embracing or grounding stories in realism. I think like that's one of the great things of movies like he's made, like The Wrestler, which is a little bit outside of, you know, it still has the formula of a movie that he's made, which is like a person is obsessed with a craft and it drives them to uh, sacrifice something in their life. But that movie is grounded in an intense realism. And I think with this film, you know, the things that he would always kind of push us to be thinking about was consistency of style and, you know, kind of treating the formal rigor of the movie uh, a lot more seriously. And I think, I don't know. So we have the editor of Lance's new feature film, Some Kind of Heaven, here today, Dan Garber. Dan's also really like, I mean, the co-author of this movie, too, in a way. I mean, he, he uh, you know. You know, I know Darren was giving these sort of like high high level edits throughout the process of this film. What was yeah. it What was it like working with Darren and, and what did he bring to the film? Darren, I think, came in at exactly the right moments. It's not like he was a constant presence in the editing room but sometimes we would send him a cut and then he would send back an email in the form of like a haiku almost (laughs) it was just like the fewest possible notes but extremely hard-hitting ones and so whenever there was a question that we really needed answered we would send him a text or send him a section of the film and he would immediately come back with a very thoughtful response to it so that was very helpful can you give an example of just like (laughs) one of his notes that you found really helpful yeah, I mean, he, he we screened the movie for him uh, in, like, a theater. And I remember this was, like, the first cut we had shown to him. And it was, like, an assembly cut. So it was it was, it was was messy. It was rough. It was really long. And uh, he sat Dan and I both down afterwards for, like, this kind of marathon, two-and-a-half-hour lunch. And he just was like, you know, you know, 40% of your movie uh, looks good and the rest doesn't. And... <laughs> He basically pointed to Dan and he was like, Dan, I like what you're doing. You're doing a good job. Like I could see, I see through the seams of what you're putting together and it's good. And he pointed back to me and he's like, you, you don't, you're not giving him enough. And he's like, you need to, you need to leave. You need to go back to Florida until you have the Mm -hmm. rest of the movie for him to work with. And so you thought that you were done. Like you thought that you had enough. No, I mean, no No. way. I mean, Dan came on at an interesting point. I mean, we can talk a little bit about that too. It's like, this film started off as, you know, I had been wanting to make it after all the the shorts I had done. And all the shorts I had done really did feel like training in a way to make something longer. And, you know, it was my thesis in college. So I was, I was just trying to, at the time, like, make probably, like, another short. But it kept growing. But I didn't, I didn't have enough to make a feature. It didn't seem like it was fulfilling that kind of thing. And then when Dan came on in, in January 
it was kind of like this reality check for me where, you know, I've, I've been used to just kind of cutting all of my own stuff, usually alone, and then bringing on, um, you know, another editor to, to kind of give another set of eyes and work with. And, and, and uh, we were struggling to figure out what it was. And I think finally when Dan came on, he was just like, dude, you just don't have, you don't have a movie. And um, I think it was like, it took a lot of effort and work between the two of us to then figure out what, what that film was. What do you think was missing from it initially? Like, was it just straight up, like not enough hours of footage or was it just that it, it wasn't the right kind of footage? It's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I think sometimes you think that you have enough hours that you could cut something long together, but it takes even more time just to figure out what the correct direction for things is. And I think that part of the challenge here was that Lance, I think, wanted to make a kind of Fred Wiseman-esque institutional portraiture mm-hmm. kind of film about the villages, this giant retirement community. And I remember I actually went down there for the second shoot and Lance would keep shooting with all of the characters he had already shot with. And I would be like, Lance, this is not <laughs> this is not working. You have to shoot more of the institutions if you want to make this kind of film. But he kept coming back to the characters. And I think ultimately that's what ended up working in the film. And it was more just sticking around for long enough to see developments in the characters' lives. And that's what ultimately made the film coalesce. Hmm. So you think that shooting more of the characters actually ended up working and less of the institution? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. So it started as a sort of film about a place, yeah. but then it ended up being a film that was about people living inside of that place. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing that I learned with Dan, too, it was like, first off setting isn't story, right? Like, even though this was an amazing place and there's so yeah. many interesting things that were going on in it, it wasn't, there wasn't anything present tense happening or that we had access to, for example. And as you were saying earlier, it was like, you know, access is everything. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing I also, you know, it's it's the thing that was different about working on this film than like a short, right? Is Is on a short, you go to a place, you know, at least this is my own experience, my other shorts I've made, I've been in a place for like, you know, five days and I'd always set this expectation for myself to, you know, come out with a film that would be reflective of someone's essence or, you know, who they are as a person. And I think in retrospect, that's kind of like a, I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of like an insane thing that we keep trying to do. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it really is. I mean, yeah. it's it's hard to do that. And I think like, you know, I've certainly been guilty of this before. And I imagine a lot of, you know, journalists or documentary filmmakers, it's like you end up, if you spend more time with the thing you're working on, the art rather than the person, I think you kind of have a bias towards what you're making. And um, I think on this film, you know, that like just literally by proxy of like, you, I just needed to go back and you, you, you continue to shoot all the time. I was just I was there. I was around. I was I was there for like, you know, off and on like 18 months. So I was I was really I don't know. It it, it uh I like these the folks that are in this film are not, you know, they're not subjects like even after the movie's done. I you know, they're like they're basically like family at this point. They Yeah, it's I mean, watching the film, I the first thing I thought of, there's a lot of parts of the film where you're just like absorbing this like kind of absurd place mm-hmm. and there's just these all these just like funny moments and I'm sure that this was like such a challenge and like kill your babies because you being there Mm. and probably observing all of these like hilarious and absurd things happening all the time Mm -hmm. how did you choose which of those to include 
to really like paint a picture of this place and and which to exclude it. And was that that process hard? Yeah, I mean, it took a lot of it took a lot of work. It took a lot of like us arguing with each other. And then it's funny. I mean, we we both like Dan being the person who I really think gave the movie a lot of shape. Like obviously we were shooting a lot of it, and and then you know I cut it with Dan, but like Dan really took the reins and. I have to say, like most most of the time, he was right. So when I would be like, "This is so funny, it needs to be in the film," it'd always be like, "What is this? Is this servicing the main thesis of the movie?" And that's that thesis is something I feel like we both came up with, which is like, you know, essentially this is a film about you know people on the margins of this fantasy. What you know, what moments in between the parts where you're with people who are kind of struggling to find their footing there, best speak to the idea that this is a fantasy land or this is kind of this, you know, like wonderland utopia that isn't like nowhere else. But I don't know, Dan, what would what, what you have to... Yeah, I also think there's a really fine line to walk here because it is, to to many people, a very absurd place. And of course, it's unlike most other places. It's so planned. And every resident of the villages recognizes that it is a planned community and it it's not representative of the rest of the world. And that's one of the things that they love about it. So I think a lot of the question is, how do you represent that sort of surreal aspect of the villages without painting people as, without painting the residents of the villages as being somehow absurd or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we don't want to be too judgmental given that we are a couple of very young filmmakers showing up in this place that has a bunch of residents who are much older than we are and who probably have very legitimate reasons for wanting to live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Even if we might ultimately disagree with them and not make the same decisions ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an interesting fine line that you are walking on in a lot of your films. I mean, it's similar to Happiest Guy in the World, which is mm. similarly portraying this sort of like margins of reality, surreal world that is like being on a cruise ship. And everybody kind of gets a taste of it when they go on a cruise. But then you're exploring this person who is living in that world all the time. And so how do you navigate that line of wanting to entertain the viewer with like the absurdity of this place, but then also not being too cruel and and making Mm -hmm. fun of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a a really good question because I think that's that's – that is the challenge of, well, first off, you know, it's like you have to know your place, right? It's like, I, it, you know, if you if you don't live in that world and you're just kind of a tourist of it, I think you need to, it's, it's, it's very important to try and as best as you can understand or connect with, uh, you know, kind of what's happening. You know, why, why are you making this film? Why are you, you know, like basically connecting with, what what um like Mario and the you know and the cruise is is going through and there's certainly a lot of things that I think you know life choices that he's made that I would never make but I also you know this idea that kind of um there's so much bad stuff going on in the world and what better way to leave it all behind than to like truly just isolate yourself I mean I think like a lot of people maybe not me but I think I like I, I definitely there are parts of me that resonate with that but I don't know I mean. I think like one of the easiest things you can do in a documentary is like make someone look foolish or make fun of them or do these things that aren't, you know, in my opinion, smart or interesting filmmaking. And, um, you know, I think it's it's a balance. Like I think I shot a lot of stuff in both films and pretty much maybe everything I've made that that um, 
you know, that that definitely, if edited in a certain way, could do can do that kind of thing. But I think that's, you know, for one, I think on this feature, spending the amount of time we did with these folks and getting to know them as well, I think gave us a lot of, I don't know, it gave us a lot of foresight into, you know, how to best edit their stories together. And on my shorts, I think that's something I've less successfully done. Like, I think, I do think the cruise film, um, you know, I don't, I think it, I think my intention of it is to objectively look at his world. Um, but I think there are just parts of, you know, there are definitely parts of it that are like the, the title, you know, can be read as both ironic or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he is the happiest guy in the world. But I do, you know, I, I think, I think it was, it's less success- successful in walking that tightrope as I think this feature is. And I think that's a large part. Thanks to, <laughs> thanks to this, this gentleman, Daniel, <laughs> um, you, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, conversations that go back and forth between us. And obviously it was very helpful to have Dan um, there for when we were shooting parts of it. Can you talk a bit more about the role that the New York Times played in the film, how they helped you shape it and what you've learned from working with them? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like this this is a I mean, it's this this project is I think it's like one of their first feature length docs that they're putting out into the world. And I definitely, you know, um, I think if and when people see it, I think they will be hopefully surprised by by what that means, because I, I, I like I don't find this movie. This movie doesn't have a political agenda, I guess, explicitly. It doesn't have it's not, you know, it's not. It doesn't even um, really feel like news. Yeah, not really. I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's a <laughs> yeah. movie that's much more concerned with a kind of, um, I don't know, emotional experience, uh, you know, and, and I and I think um, that's something that Kathleen was like always you know, impressing upon me. I think like this film initially, as Dan was saying before, it's like it started off as this institutional portrait of this place that I was curious about. And I think I was, when I first got there, I think I was just as critical of it as anybody who's written a story on it is. But having spent so much time there, like I think my position changed after spending so much time with certain people. And, you know, it was kind of amazing that like Kathleen, who again has this giant institution that she's representing, um, was able to see that and also see the benefits of making a film kind of, you know, that's different than maybe a lot of others out there. Um, the film that's much more concerned, you know, um, yeah, with, with this kind of, I don't know, challenging a stereotype in a way. Like this is an agenda-driven film. This is a movie really about, you know, how unresolved life can be in your final years. And I think that's something that like she definitely can connect to and related to. And, you know, um, every time she would have notes, it was always to push that, that, that thread forward, which is, you know, I the think theme. What the, yeah, what the yeah. film actually is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, hopefully that's, that continues to be the case with the films that she's championing, championing, but um, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. Like I feel like I, I feel like we got very lucky and fortunate to have you know them be a part of it and Darren be a part of it and everyone kind of unifying behind this you know less flashy. This isn't an expose. This is this is you know a quieter and, and more emotional film. And I think um, Dan and I were definitely very like nervous when we first were making it because we we're like, is this you know is, are they are people going to be upset with this? Like this is not what. Maybe they thought they were getting into initially, and now 
Hmm. It is what it is. Um, A lot of people think of, obviously, most people think of the New York Times as just being this like investigative reporting um, authority on the news. Mm -hmm. But the the OpDocs unit, and I would imagine the features unit, is so different than that. Yeah, Uh, I mean, it does have more that uh, emotional element. Though it still also has to abide by all the journalistic of standards. Of yeah. So we have yeah. to get fact-checked, too. So there's nothing yeah, that's factually yeah. inaccurate about the film. But, I mean, it's true. It's really it not that many facts like, in the film. Right, right. Yeah. I guess that's a large part of it. But it seems that the journalistic aims of The Times and the primarily fiction film-oriented uh, approach of, of Protozoa, those could have come into conflict, but... Fortunately, everybody was so on board with Lance's vision for the film. Hmm. And I think that that's really a testament to to the strength of that vision and also how much empathy Lance had for his characters and how that shone through in the footage. Hmm. Mm, thank you. Yeah, but it's also, you know, I think that the other thing, too, that was really important in, in doing that is I think if you're making a feature and you're trying to get financing or you're trying to basically, you're, you're trying to, you know, augment your your team to to, you know, basically make the film you want to make like I think initially you know honestly I didn't really have the vision of the movie was like the the way we were shooting it was clear and I think there was a there was an authorship that was you know that that we were doing like we we had that I had to say you know stylistically but a lot of the parts of it you know really weren't figured out until probably like our third shoot and what do you mean um, the parts of it like I think just like where, you know, like the the kind of the holdover of the first vision of the film, which was this more institutional, you Hmm. know, movie. And I think that was the film that everyone was really signing on for. Um, But ultimately, I think like the thing that was, you know, that that I just tried to do as much as I could throughout the process was just show and like basically give like not mislead anyone that was, you know, being a part of it, like constantly, you know, even like shared footage of like raw footage with both the times and protozoa like we were we were doing we were kind of constantly having like story ideas or you know who like these are these are like the 40 people we were following whose stories you know like what's what's going on what are we going to do um and it all kind of you know worked worked out in a way but yeah i mean the opdocs division specifically like that was kind of when i was like in high school and i was looking at shorts and stuff and i i mean the thing i loved about what they were doing is that there is a real I don't know. There's a diversity in style, I think, and like, there's not, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think every film that they've made is, you know, it, it's not like, you know, a daily episode. It's like th- these are these are films that are made by artists, and the New York Times is using their brand to basically like shed light on someone whose work they really admire. And I think like that's something they've definitely did with me, but they definitely did the same for like a filmmaker like Garrett Bradley, who's. Like she's amazing in her movies. I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, Alone, but like that film is like definitely so far away than from what you would normally think of the New York Times, and it's like breathtakingly beautiful. Um, and her feature is also that's is also at Sundance this year. The New York Times is on. So, what's her feature called again? Her feature is called Time. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's just so cool. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like such a different kind yeah. of a approach to making stuff totally. and um you know i think there's a lot of agenda driven movies out there not to say that that's a bad thing but um it's cool that the new york times doesn't feel that burden to mm-hmm. you know yeah do that definitely can you talk about shifting from 
making short films to long films, the challenges that go along with that. I mean, we just talked about staying true to the theme of your film. I mean, it's a lot easier to do something like that in a short film than a long film. You make something a feature length and it just complicates everything. You're bringing more people in. <laughs> it's more chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I imagine that was a challenge, staying true to that theme. And what were some of the other challenges that you faced? I mean, it's interesting. Like, shorts are their own medium as I feel like this like something I've learned too. I don't think it's like, I think making a feature is like probably it is it is harder in, in some ways just because there's a lot of maneuvering you have to do obviously like there's just the sheer process of it but then there's also you know politically you have to find and align yourself with partners who are willing to you know get behind something that may not materialize exactly how you've pitched it to them um but you know i mean like shorts are, are in a lot of ways they're just as hard i think like dan and i talk about this all the time where like what's the marker of a good short? I think it's like sometimes you see shorts that are basically like a, an advertisement for a feature. It's a proof of concept for a feature. And, you know, like in some ways, I feel like that the the short landscape has kind of, I don't know, some, somehow maybe less in docs, but it's like with narrative films, I feel like that's definitely been the case after some people have heard about like Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, you know, short to feature. And um, I don't know. I mean, like documentary shorts, I think are... I think are difficult for, a, you know, a different reason. I think that reason is just like, how do you boil someone's essence down in 10 minutes? And like, the answer is you usually can't. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I learned a lot. I feel like I didn't go into this, you know, some kind of heaven movie. I didn't go into it thinking this would be a feature. I went in, if I knew that it was, if I, if I like knew like first day going to the villages that it would become that, I honestly would have been like so intimidated and shocked and like, I don't know if I want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, kind of the beauty of everything is it kind of metamorphosed organically into uh, being what it is. Mm. And I don't, I, you know, I have a lot of friends now also who are like, I'm going to go make a feature and it's going to be a doc and it's going to be about this thing. And I'm like, I feel like that's the wrong attitude to have. You don't, you know. Even if you do shoot, like, let's say you go back, you shoot something for your first trip, you shoot like 20 days um, and you have a lot of footage and you think it could be a feature. Like what Dan was saying earlier, like just because you have a lot of footage doesn't mean you necessarily have a film that should be longer. Um, and I think that's another thing you have to, you know, you have to kind of understand the limitations of, you know, what a feature is and what it does. Um and I think it's a different language in a lot of ways than shorts. You know, a short, you could just drop someone into a cool world and there could be some interesting characters and then, you know, boom, that's it. But with the feature, it's like, you can't do that. You got, you got to do more. You got to give them more. Uh, yeah. It, it reminds me of this. I took this, like, personal essay class in college and... Some people would would write an essay and the teacher would be like, no, this is this is actually a memoir. Like this should be a memoir mm. and mm. continue writing it. And then it'll just be, become what it's that supposed thing. to yeah, be. Yeah. Or this will be like a thousand word essay and it's just meant to be that. Yeah. But I feel like you don't know that until you actually just start making it. Yeah. You no, know? it's like you kind of like you're firing, you know, you're like you're you're aiming, you're, you're you're firing without aiming and then you're like trying to like chase the bullet or whatever yeah. as or yeah. the arrow as much as you can and until it kind of hopefully hits the target that you're aiming for. And sometimes in this case like I I actually like pretty much in every case of every film I've made, it's like 
I don't have a target usually. It's just like, oh, interesting story, interesting setting, interesting person. I'm going to go do that and hopefully something will come out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the exactly perfect metaphor for that. And some people would call it aimless, but I I think that that is like a really smart approach. Yeah, I think it's important to be. It's important to be aimless, I think, you know. I was just talking to a friend the other day who was also a film director, and he was telling me about how so much of, of directing a film is just like trying to get your team to create their best work and t- to be excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're not a first time filmmaker, but this is your first feature film. Um, how have you, what have you learned is like the best way to do that? Mm. Um, I mean, so much yeah. of it is, is about like managing people. Yeah, um, yeah. How do you get people excited about your projects? Well, I think like part of it is you want, it's like you want everyone to take a risk or like basically put something of themselves into the film. Like the music is a huge part of the film and the composer Ari Belusian, like he, you know, like I notice things in his music that I really like. Like he has a band um, and I love the records they make and you know, it was like always, you know, it, it was less of a mandate of, you know, you need to give me this or we never like we never worked with temp music. We would always temp with other songs he had made before. Um, so, you know, I mean, even in da- like David's case, the DP, yeah, I've, I have worked with him before, but I've never worked with him in this kind of way. I feel like like this was kind of a, you know, um, you know, like initially I would bring like photo books and I would send him images that I had taken of the villages. And then we would talk a lot about, you know, ways in which, you know, we wanted to do things. And then finally, when we were just shooting one day, he was like, it needs to be all a tripod. And it, and I wanted to shoot it for three. And I was like, what? And then we kind of went back and forth over it. And then I just was like, you know, he's going to be making in like the, the, the like, based on the references that we've been talking about, he's going to want to make this as good as it possibly can be if he feels like he's taking a risk. And I mean, even like, I mean, when Dan came on and I was trying to like get him onto the movie, I think it was that same kind of thing. It was like this, there was, we were charting, we were in uncharted waters. We had no idea where we were going half the time, but if everyone felt like they were contributing or their voices were heard in like the process of making it, I think, everyone would feel, you know, more invested, more invested in the process. I had done this like Sundance uh, program called Ignite, uh, which is like a, it's a great, you know, fellowship for younger filmmakers. And my mentor through this program was was this filmmaker named Je- Jeff Orlowski who had made like Chasing Ice and these, you know, a bunch of bigger docs. And the one thing that he was like amazing at is – He's kind of this excellent, beyond being a great filmmaker, he's this excellent kind of skillful negotiator and he totally understands how difficult the business sides of making a feature is. Um, and, you know, having that kind of guidance throughout that process was also like great because I, I was learning from someone who had done it many times before and specifically would always somehow have like a right, the right answer for these kinds of questions. Hmm. But um yeah. What was some of the best advice that he gave you? You know, at what what points do you want to share cuts with, you know, people who are maybe more outside of the process? And I think that's something that Dan and I would always be like trying to figure out, you know, maybe we had an idea that was that we felt was kind of there, but maybe for someone who like, you know, wasn't as present in the, the those kinds of conversations you know, would that be scary or like how, you know, those, and 
there's never like a quite quite the right answer or time to hmm. you know the right answer for all of that stuff but my job as a producer of the movie too is like to make sure that you know I don't really know what the analogy is here but like we're not competing with other people who are on the film we're all trying to kind of this isn't four-dimensional Chinese checkers we're trying to make the same film you know yeah um yeah. I imagine showing cuts because you did mention earlier that this film changed a lot yeah. throughout the course of making it. And so I imagine showing cuts of it to, like, I don't know, various stakeholders or other people who had worked on the film who maybe had a different idea of what it was going to be yeah. was complicated. Sure. How did you navigate that? And and do you have any advice for um, someone who might be going through the same process? I think you just got to like stay stay true to your guns, you know, stick 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 to what you and your team are 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 confident in and and proud of and believe in and I know it sounds kind of trite, but you know, if you are confident and excited about what you are making, then you need to express that excitement and confidence in what you're making. If you are going to someone who has given you money or you know, and you're you know, maybe it depends on what your kind of relationship is, but in my opinion, it's like, you know, express your ideas. If people have questions, listen, you know, don't don't be defensive, you know, hear people out, listen to them and, and try and have a conversation about what you're actually making. Um, I think like the biggest mistake you can make is if you feel like it's some kind of transactional relationship you have that someone's given you money and you're going to go make your own film. I think you need to be... You know, you, you need to make the impression be that you all are making the same film, even if sometimes you deviate from from that. Um, hmm. But, you know, again, I feel like we were really lucky in this case. It's like a lot of people were always, you know, I think there definitely were people who were, who were like around me who were cautioning me about bringing in so many voices on my, you know, on a first feature. And it could have gone poorly and it could, you know, who knows. Um, but I think you know, the stars aligned in a certain kind of way and, you know. So you're 23, almost 24, um, which is extremely young to be, you know, doing what you're doing, um, making a feature-length film with the New York Times. I imagine that kind of presents its own challenges just being taken seriously by people in this industry. How do you hold your own being being 23 and, and working with people who have so much more experience than you? I think regardless of whatever age you are, it's like no if your ideas are good and you're passionate and you are and you have like a verve to you or you have like a not to say these are the things I have about myself. I think like the best asset I have is not my age. I think it's just like I I have this like you know, I'm trying to I'm hustling all the time. Like I need that's like something that I feel like is instilled in me by my parents. I think, you know, yeah, if someone doesn't take me seriously, then like I, I'm i doing something wrong. It's not, I don't think it's because it's an age thing. I think it's more of um, maybe I'm not listening. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe maybe I'm, I'm coming off air, as arrogant or something. I think, you know, there's certain a- aspects of in this process specifically that, that were very helpful. I think a little being younger, because I, I think, yeah, sometimes it's like if you do make the wrong, if you do make a mistake, it's it's sometimes it's easier to play, you know, the naive card, I think, at times. But And I think the other advantage there is that people also want to be very protective 
of, of Lance and of the film. And if you're young, I think people sometimes worry that you're going to get trampled upon or something. Mm-hmm. And so everybody really just wants to make sure that barriers are in place to, right. to protect the process. Mm. I think I just think don't be an beneficial. asshole. Just you know? don't be an asshole. Don't be an that's asshole. a good that's lesson, the, yeah. overarching lesson, I would say. Yeah. So what do you have coming up, Lance? Who knows? Projects. I'm, yeah, Dan, Dan and I are working on some stuff. I, I'm, you know, I, I really want to... I don't know, do some doc stuff. I, I'm, I'm also, like, I'm extremely interested in making, like, narrative films and going down that avenue. So Dan and I are working on something in that space. Um, but, yeah, right now we're just trying to keep our heads on straight. So um, yeah. before, <laughs> before Sundance, <laughs> which is in, like, a week. Yeah. Well, good luck next week. It's thank so exciting. You. And congratulations yeah. and on the for, film. Thank you for watching it. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. Hansdale Sue does our audio mix. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top merging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com. Visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe and rate our show.